I'm your producer, Todd Bartu, and this is the Offshore Explorer. Offshore Explorer looks at the world from the sailor's point of view, port by port. Together, we share stories that detail the important intersections between sailing culture and life, past, present, and future. Let me introduce our host, a lifelong sailor who has traveled the world, from mug yachts to tugboats to ice boats, and a published author who has written for both stage and screen, Captain Scott Todson. Hello, Todd. How are you doing today? We've uh, got some serious winds out in the uh, bay today. Uh, small craft warnings, but uh, small craft on the upper end. Um, had some big gusts, uh, a steady stream of white caps. I'm doing great. And uh, I have in my hands a five star review from one of our listeners. Um, and, and I know, I know who it's from. And she's describes herself as our number one fan. And uh, I, I, I love them. And uh, follow them as eagerly to see what they're up to. So the review is from our number one fan, five stars. One brave man's very real account of his life at sea. Scott's captivating stories make you feel you are sailing along right next to him. Packed in with great advice with a little side of humor. A must listen for any sailor. From Nikki. Thank you, Nikki. Thanks for listening. And we appreciate the kind words. Thank you, Nikki. You know, I love you guys. Thanks. And uh, if you want us to read out your five-star review on the show, make sure you leave. go to Apple Podcasts or iTunes and leave us a five-star review. And you might hear your review on the show. Now that that's out of the way, what do we have in store for today's episode? Um, today I tackle a rather large, uh, subject, um, a, a sort of a kaleidoscope subject, you might say, and I talk about the port of, uh, LA. I know there's a lot of people out there that think LA is us all sitting in a hammock and drinking mojitos and, well, really, quite frankly, we would rather that you do think that, um, but instead, uh, we work our asses off and discovering yourself as a sailor, some skills that you have to have, how to, how to make money, how to be aware of certain things. Um, if you want to be a cruiser and go to different countries and all the rest. Uh, but uh, the port of LA is the largest port in the world. Second largest port being Long Beach. They're right next to each other. You wouldn't know the difference if you uh, went down through the breakwater. And it moves more freight and containers than any place in the world. And it is our setting for a certain kind of um, discovery about work and jobs and fulfillment. Okay, great. Take it away, Scott. Los Angeles Harbor and Long Beach Harbor are the largest container ship ports in the world. Combined, they're number one. Separately, they're number one and number two. The volume of work and goods that comes through this place is just enormous. The biggest in the world. But there's more to a port than the statistics and the volume 
of traffic and the numbers of containers, the goods, the kinds of goods, whether they're containerized, bulk, or liquid. Each one has their own separate world. So when you look at a port, it's a little like looking through a kaleidoscope. Um, you know, you remember when you were a kid and you would turn the end and change the position of the little pieces of colored glass. And that's the way a port is. It's, it's not a particular monolith. Um, ports are about jobs um, in, in the basic, basic, basic way. Um, and ports employ a lot of people in the marine industry. Ports are the center of the marine industry. So if you are uh, just a date, you know, weekend sailor, um, that boat you have probably came by ship into the port and was delivered to um, your, your local uh, yacht salesman. Everything has to do, everything comes through the port. So if you cruise or sail, you live in the marine world, you're going to need skills. And I get asked this question a lot. What sort of skills can I, can, do I need to have in order to live on a boat, in order to cruise, and to make money as I go along? Um, I know everybody sort of goes like, oh, I could sew sails. I'll buy a sewing machine. Oh, I can uh, do varnish, I can do carpentry work, I can do engine mechanic work, I can do electrical work, um, I can do uh, refrigeration or air conditioning work. Um, these are all basic skills that you probably should have for your own boat. So this story in this podcast is about how I discovered the inner workings of a port, which I think applies to all ports in the world. Because um, the ports are basically set up the same way. Uh, the people that surround the port and work for the port may be of different ethnicities and a different culture, but essentially the port itself operates, especially in an age of containerized shipping, uh, in the same thing. And I think it's also important to um, point out to those people that follow us uh, about cruising and having the skills in order to be successful at cruising, be able to make some money um, as you're going about and to live like the complete live aboard uh, marine lifestyle. So if you've been following me, you know that I chartered for many years in the Caribbean and the Mediterranean. I ran my boat uh, for 18 years. Um, I averaged probably about 20 charters a year, 20 weeks a year out of 52. Um, I went back and forth. I spent eight weeks approximately crossing the Atlantic and coming you know, back and forth. Um, I spent a lot of time uh, sailing, um, lovely time. 100% lovely time sailing. The only way that I could make money was to charter. And chartering has its own has its own problems and opportunities, but for the most part chartering 
can be a very, very difficult uh, business. First of all, a lot of it has to do with the boat. And um, you need a big enough boat to bring people on. Um, and I, you know, you, you can't get away with a 40-foot boat. You can't, a 50-foot is about, as I would see it, is the only size boat that you're going to be able to charter on. Um, and then probably only maybe four people at the most. Um, there's a point of diminishing returns. Uh, when I sold my boat, which was a CT-54, I could easily carry um, eight passengers. Um, I had bunks for people and everything else like that. It, it worked out. It was a bit crowded at times, but it still worked out. On average, most of my charters were either two to four people. Uh, but for the most part, the boat uh, was fairly efficient. The problem being is because it was an older boat, I couldn't get the asking price for a charter that I would if I had a newer boat. Newer boats get more money. So after doing a quick analysis, I realized that if I'm going to charter, I need something in the 90-foot range. I need to charge 75 grand a week. It's a totally different clientele. It's a different kind of charter. Um, I've done it um, on boats. Um, I've done Perini Navi, which was a 120-foot boat, but you know it's kind of in that class, in that range. And um, you don't do as f the frequency of charters, but you do, you do uh, quite. A, you can do quite a few. But it's the only way to make money and pay your boat off. If you're lucky to have the money to buy the boat, and you don't have a mortgage on the boat. Well, you know, then that's a different story. But you got to have size because people aren't going to rent. Be in a little boat with you, um, no matter how charming you are. And I realized that. I also ran uh, mega yachts. I've uh, run some Fed ships, uh, Pre-Navi, obviously, um, a few others. Um, so I have that that experience as a captain and doing that. I've also, as some of you know, uh, ran a tugboat. I talked about this with uh, Tim B at sea um, earlier in the year. Um, he's a tugboat captain in uh, New York Harbor. And we talked about being a, you know, what it takes to be a, a tugboat captain and, and a commercial captain. And this is something that I would like to tell everybody that if you're thinking of, you know, if you're young, I'm going to put, let me put some parentheses on this. If, if you're a young guy, let's say still in your 30s, early 40s, you get yourself a captain's license, there is a good possibility that you could make a living um, being a, um, a marine boat captain, being a mate on a boat or a tender, etc. There's a lot of things you can do with that. Um, and that might be helpful if you remain in the United States. Uh, once you get out of the United States, uh, there's a whole different set of, of skills that are required in order to, to make a living that way. And some of the things I've picked up in my over 50-year career um, I picked up some skills like uh, varnishing. Some of you remember the story of love and saffron rice. It's about varnishing. And I've done a lot of varnishing. And, um, and I can safely claim that I know quite a bit about engine mechanics, electronics, air conditioning, rigging, any kind of carpentry. You get the picture. I have a vast um, set of skills. 
But there's only one caveat, because I don't do these things on a regular basis. I can't do them with the speed of professional. And the quality of my work, although, say, varnish or maybe getting an engine to run or whatever the case may be, diagnosing stuff, is pretty easy to do for me. Um, my experience is that a professional can usually hit it out a lot faster and and move on. They've got the parts. I don't have the parts. They've got the tools. Sometimes you need a special, you know, wrench or socket or whatever the case may be. And this is this is some good stuff to have. It's a good thing to learn. Um, it's a good thing to practice. Uh, but turning it into a a profession where, you know, you could show up at a, a, on a dock in Tahiti and become the mechanic. Well, that's just not going to happen. If you want to show up in, in for example, um, uh, Malta and you want to, you're going to sew sails and you're there to undercut the sailmaker that's already there, people are going to be very unhappy with you. And this is something you have to be really aware of. Because people can be very vindictive about this kind of stuff. They could tell you to leave. They could go to the port captain who's their uncle and say, this person has to go because they're undercutting my business. You know, you may be able to get one sale done or a, uh, a canopy or a dodger or something like that. But, you know, once the locals find out that you're cutting into their bucks, your, uh, your time is, 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 is very short. So I have a wide experience in almost everything that is marine. I've built a bunch of boats. Uh, I cross over between pleasure craft and, and professional marine um, boats. And um, I'm just sort of setting up um, the idea of how one, how I personally discovered the Port of Los Angeles. The Port of Los Angeles is a very interesting place and a very diverse place and a very gritty place. Uh, it seems impenetrable and it's incredibly competitive. So the story is this. I came into the port through kind of like the back door, but it sort of defined on how I see my life. And it defined how my work came about and what I do. Now, many of you know that I am a writer and I'm, I've been published. I've done a number of movies. Uh, I produce a t couple of TV shows. I do a lot of things in the creative side. And I also still do my sailing. And I'm a part of the marine community. So... I was living in France, uh, in Antibes to be exact, and I was, I was just, I was prepared to live there for the rest of my life. Uh, I was going to be Picasso and myself. I lived in an apartment just down the street from him, and even though he was long past, uh, um, you know, rest his soul. There were good jobs. There were good paying jobs for captains. Um, a lot of private yachts to work on, and I had kind of done all of that. Um, I've been a temporary captain on a few boats. Uh, good money, you know, keep the boat, don't go anywhere, just hang out. Um, I've worked in the shipyard uh, in Antibes over the winter, doing a couple of odds and ends, working on a few boats. Uh, Papillon, um, uh, one boat that I, I worked on quite extensively. 
Um, I also sort of help supervise uh, building of boats. Um, I got offers to work um, uh, from two Italian shipyards, which was just around the corner and down the way. Um, I turned both of them down. I don't regret actually doing that, although my life would have been completely different as far as that was concerned. But uh, I was just, uh, at the time, I was, I really had this thing inside me that I, I kind of wanted to get out of the industry. I had mentioned this before in the whiff of success with Antibes. I kind of got tired of the false people, the, the, the arrogant, I've got money, so I'm better than you kind of people, when in fact they don't have shit. And this is just from my own blue-collar roots. This is just how I see things. Um, and it started to bother me. And I had more and more ideas about, I'm going to get back into um, my writing. And I had had success. I had done a couple of movies already. I had worked um, for a couple of French and German film companies, rewriting European scripts so that they would be more palatable for American audiences. And I would rewrite American scripts for a more European sensibility. And just as an aside, it's all about the air in the script. I'll leave that there. Maybe I'll have a discussion sometime on screenwriting. So I was really haunted by this need to do my writing. And I was tired of being a captain. So, and one of the reasons I was tired of being captain is I was running out of charm. I was tired of just these people being such jerks. Um, and, you know, you get to a point where you're just tired of serving people. And that's basically what you are as a captain. You're, you're running this boat. You have a great profession. You have a great um, knowledge. You have great skill. You're, you're in charge of a $15 million or $50 million yacht. And it's all your responsibility. And yet you're still serving the people that own the boat like you would be as if you were a waiter. And not given that kind of respect that you should have. And I know that some captains, they, they have a great deal of respect from their owners and it's a great thing. But I was finishing up a delivery from England to Mallorca on a Princess 65. It was a good gig, good pay. On my way home... I uh, ran into this American guy. His name was John. And uh, we were at the airport in uh, Mallorca. And uh, it turns out that he was a film producer from L.A. And he was a big-time sailor that he had just spent the uh, a couple of weeks sailing around the Balearics. And, you know, it was a big deal. And he was super happy. And he was going to go to Antibes, which is where I was going back to, and uh, we sat next to each other on this little twin-engine, 20-passenger plane, and it was sort of this white-knuckle ride. And while we're doing it, we're kind of sharing our bios, as one does with strangers when you think you're going to die um, in a few minutes and crash into the sea. Um, but we managed to we managed to land in Nice and 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 shared a cab and got to Antibes and and ironically as it turns out that that he was coming to visit um an, an American girl that uh I knew that lived and she was a um, 
she was a yoga instructor and she used to teach do yoga with uh, the people on the mega yachts and you know fitness and all the rest of that kind of stuff and they were friends for years and stuff like that so he he had um eventually offered me a job to uh write a screenplay or an ad- do an adaptation of a book um uh from the grape about the grateful dead and um i was going to come to los angeles and write it and i figured okay if I'm going to do this writing career, uh, I got to go. I got to actually go and do this. Even though I was a bit skeptical about him, um, didn't really make any difference to me. I was just going to get up and go and uh, see where that would take me. Because I believed in my marine skills, and I knew that there was a Marina del Rey with thousands of boats, one of the largest man-made marinas in the world. I knew that there was the Port of Los Angeles and the Port of Long Beach, which was like, you know, 40 miles long, some 7,000 square miles or whatever. The place is just absolutely monstrous. And I knew that I could make a living there if I had to. And anybody who's an artist always has to make a living. And that's the important part is how do you make and support yourself while you're pursuing your career as an artist. And just to give you an example, I once had a conversation on the dock with Kevin Costner. This is long before Kevin Costner became Kevin Costner um, about finding work on boats. And we had talked about uh, going up and working on one of the factory boats up in Alaska cleaning fish. Um, great pay, um, brutal work, um, and and he was just looking for uh, something to do. And um, I didn't have any work for him on the boat, but he was he was young and he um, was looking for something to do. Also, um, another was Claude Van Damme, who used to live on a little powerboat. Um, he used to sun himself on the front of the powerboat. He, he's quite a specimen, to say the least. Um, and then, you know, he would be flexing his muscles and all the rest of that stuff. And, and, and he worked as a waiter in a restaurant. So we used to see him all the time. And, and as untold number of people, I mean, and writers, of course, they're, you know, actors that you never heard of, but you would probably recognize their face. And, you know, half of a, in Los Angeles, you could swing a cat and hit either a writer or an actor or a director or a producer. It's pretty easy. So I had left France which was a rather comfortable situation and to start working in Los Angeles um, at the bottom at the very bottom and there's something I'm as an aside here I want to say is that uh, in today's political um, climate there's a lot of people that especially the right-wing um, Republican portrayal of the quote-unquote left coast those liberal left coasters I, you know, most of us are real blue collar people. I'm a blue collar guy. No doubt about it. We work our asses off. Okay. Um, And the competition for jobs is intense. The costs of living in Southern California and Los Angeles is expensive. Okay. We have to, we have to fight for every morsel that we get. 
So we're, we're as blue-collar and as labor-oriented as you possibly can get. And labor is a good thing. Being in the labor pool and having a union is a good thing. So let me tell you how it kind of got going. I took up residence in a 24-foot Catalina. Didn't have an engine or a head um, as a sneak board. Um, I started going around Marina del Rey looking for jobs. Um, I was in Marina del Rey primarily because John had a boat in Marina del Rey, and he said this would be a great place because, you know, if you want to take meetings in, in Los Angeles and Century City and Hollywood and all the rest of the stuff, although I don't know anybody who takes meetings in Hollywood, to be quite honest. But anyway, there's there's some places you can take um, take meetings. Most meetings, by the way, happen in restaurants over coffee, lunch, breakfast, dinner sometimes. Um, I checked out all the boatyards. I was trying to find some from some jobs, you know, some simple jobs, you know, like replacing pumps or, or, or varnishing or, you know, maybe I could fix somebody's en- engine, but um, or maybe I could help somebody with their sail plan. I could look at their rigging and stuff, but I, I, I didn't have a lot of these same tools. You have to understand, if you're going to do this, folks, you got to have all the right tools, right? If you're gonna if you're gonna do rigging, um, you better have all the right tools, okay? And the space to do it, because you can't do it just on a boat. But the thing is, is that I couldn't compete um, with Mexicans, a Guatemalans, a, a German engine mechanic. I couldn't compete with them um, in terms of price or in terms of um, uh, who they knew they had they all have this net they, everybody's got a network right the 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 less labor you know the less the skill um the more insulary um the the market is for the people that do that sort of work you know like the boat washers you know i'm not a boat i'm not going to go boat washing okay but that's that's like a very specialized group of people that do all the big boats and they they don't leave any any um, stone unturned um the guys who do varnish there's there's a specific number of guys that do varnish and keep up with that kind of stuff everybody's related somehow in the boat yard da, 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 da. it's all integrated it's really hard to crack the nut to get in it has nothing to do with culture or racism or illegal aliens or any of that it's people doing the day work that you need to have done on a boat on a regular basis. That's what it's about. And I kind of was going about it in a kind of half-hearted way because I was caught in this pleasure boat syndrome. I had been a captain. I had been all over the world. I had sailed everywhere. But in America, I had very little credibility. You know, in Antibes, I could walk down the street and people would, would hand me a job. Hey, Scott, I got this fit ship you want to drive, blah, blah, blah. Be no problem. Here, um, nobody gave shit. And it's the same if you try to go to an island somewhere and try to make a living. Um, you try to do certain things. It just takes time to build a business, to build whatever skill that you have, to build it up so it's actually paying for itself. But I did have some luck. And this is where sort of the worm turned for me. Um, I ran into this guy, Ted, who is a real character, was a real character, God bless his soul. And he owned Vessel Assist. And he gave me a job uh, running a towboat. 
And this allowed me to have plenty of time to write while I waited for calls. We were on 24-7 service. Um, uh, I moved out, moved out of that 27-foot Catalina um, onto a 53-foot uh, Santa Barbara Sport Fisher. Only a few made. I posted that on my um, website. Um, and... I had a you know I had a lot of work. I was making money. I was writing. I had a couple of opportunities. I sold a few scripts. Um, and uh, you know, people who think that you're going to sell scripts and like that's the last thing you're ever going to do, and you're going to put all that money in your pocket and retire, um, that's very wrong. Uh, it's very very wrong. I mean, I was writing scripts um, for some Canadian producers that were based in in Los Angeles and I was getting $10,000 a script. Okay. I'd write eight scripts a year. And I did that for about four or five years for these guys. Just one script after another script. Some of you may know the Anna Nicole movie or the Paris Hilton Prince's paparazzi movie. These are not high quality movies, but it's writing and it's 10 grand. Thank you very much. Bob's your uncle. Keep moving on. But by the time you pay the taxes, by the time you pay everything to live, you get your, you know, get caught up on your slip rent and da, 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 all that kind of stuff. Yeah. You're just, you know, you're just like anybody else. You're just grinding it out, just grinding it out. I ended up, um, uh, getting my agent who actually turned out to be a former guest on my boat, uh, when I was charting in Nevis. And yeah, it's a real small world. So I had this job of running around and towing boats and going out and giving fools gasoline because they ran out of their fuel um, before they could get in or um, towing boats out from the Pacific Palisades or, you know, going out to San Pedro. I did a bunch of t um, tows to um, Cabrillo and to the uh, island yacht marina, uh, which is in Los Angeles Harbor. Now, let me give you the quick lay of the land here. If you start from the north, you have Santa Monica Bay, which Santa Monica Bay goes all the way out to Port, Point, um, not quite out to Point Conception, but from Point Conception north, that's Northern California. Completely different weather. From Point Conception South is Southern California. Totally different weather. So if you go through that process of following me from the South, um, you get to uh, Santa Barbara, um, very lovely little town with a harbor and, you know, little commercial fishing port kind of concept to Ventura. Uh, Ventura has got its own, there's two ports there in Ventura County. And... Um, Kumani, which is uh, the Navy is in, and it's uh, mostly for exporting vegetables and fruits um, because it's big farming area right there. And then there's the other port in Ventura, which is more like up the river kind of port. Um, it's, it's mostly pleasure boats um, and fishing, a lot of fishing guys because they fish. They used to fish for albacore, um, but they they don't anymore. And they they, they fish out and and um, out at the islands and um, and and that's sort of what their business is. So as you as you come down, you kind of come straight down and go around Point Doom, which um, is famous out there for for uh, surfing. 
a lot of surf movies made out and anybody that's sitting in Kansas, for example, and you're looking at these people running down the beach with these beautiful cliffs and all the rest of this stuff, that's where they shoot all those commercials. I mean, you can, this is, this is Hollywood, right? So don't think that it's all Hollywood, but that's, that's where they go. Um, and then as you, as you come around the corner, you come to Marina del Rey, which is tucked back in there's Los Angeles itself. And for the most part, the ocean is sort of like, for people in Los Angeles, it's like looking out a picture window. Um, people don't interact with the ocean very much. Um, there's not a lot of people on the beach per se, um, not like there used to be. Um, people just don't go to the beach that often. Um, the beach is there, people go, but it's not anything that you would think. Like, you know, I know that going to the Jersey Shore in the summer, it's packed with people. In Los Angeles, it's not. It's nothing like that. So I always sort of view the whole view of the ocean from Los Angeles like looking through a picture window. And conversely, coming in from the ocean and looking at Los Angeles is, uh, you know, it's just like a picture as well. So Marina del Rey is this big marina. And then next to Marina del Rey is Redondo. As you move down the coast, um, you have a lot of commercial stuff that goes on through there. Um, and then you come to the next point, all right, which is Palos Verdes. And once you're around Palos Verdes, um, and it's, it's a lot of coral and rock and stuff like that, and a lot of people from Catalina, that sell, Catalina's about 40 miles out, and is an island, of course, and, and um, it's where the buffalo roam. There's actually buffalo on the island. Um, as a great destination for people in all the marinas along the coast to go to, to sail to. They've got, uh, you know, beautiful beaches and rocks and swimming and they got casinos and bars and all this sort of stuff. Um, and then once you round Pacific, uh, Palisades or, or I mean, Palos Verdes, um, you come to Cabrillo and that's where, San Pedro is, and that is where um, the beginning of Los Angeles Harbor. And you come in through the famous Angel Light. I'll post a picture of it. And this is where it all begins. So for me, I, you know, I had seen the harbor occasionally, but we began towing boats there because they were tearing down these apartment complexes and they are tearing down all the all the slips so all the boats had to go somewhere so there was a lot of people asking us to to tow the boats down to the marina some of them didn't run and i was doing like i was either going from there or up to ventura every day sometimes twice a day i was working 10 12 14 hours a day uh moving boats back and forth it was great pay for me because I was making 35, 40 bucks an hour. But it was also, um, it was illuminating going into um, the port of Los Angeles. And when you enter in through um, Angel's uh, Gate um, to the port side is Cabrillo Marina. And uh, that is a Pleasure Marina. Very somewhat new, very nice. Um, but then San Pedro is up behind it. Now, San Pedro is an interesting place because this ties into the whole idea of knowing knowing what you're doing in the harbor and f trying to find out 
what um, what it's about and how to make money there, especially if you're cruising. I like Cabrillo. Um, the wind blows like hell every afternoon. In fact, it was so regular that um, the America's Cup guys um, used to practice out there racing off of off of uh, Cabrillo to um, you know to to for the stiff the stiffer winds that they had in Australia uh, at Perth when they were racing at Perth and I, I, the name the year escapes me at the moment um, but anyway it doesn't matter uh, so anyway San Pedro was the home of the Tongva. Uh, which was a Native American people that had been there for thousands of years. And they go back, um, you know, like they call them the lords of the ocean because they had these ocean-going canoes called titats. And many of them um, had uh, covered, they were all along coastline, and they had their first contact with Europeans in 1542. Um, kind of a important um it was Juan rodriguez cabrillo cabrillo is the name of the of the uh, marina and of a lot of things in this area um who was uh, the first spanish explorer to 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 write them down and 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 make note of them um the whole area uh was a part of the uh tongva uh and they Palos Verdes and the Saint, Saint Pedro area, and um, this was this area. Eventually, the the Indians were forced away um, through just the Spanish ships, which started to arrive there in 1540s. Now, this is interesting because I think a lot of people on the East Coast, um, you know, they think of. You know the Mayflower and Jamestown and and the beginning of the East Coast of the United States, right? Which was the 1600s. But in San Pedro, they were already the Spanish were already there in the 1540s. So this development of a harbor was a very very important. Um, it it became. Um, a, a huge place, and, and I had misspoke earlier when I was doing something with the Rudder um, podcast about uh, how ships used to come, and, and, and they had flat bottoms because they would get up on the mud and, and take their goods off. But in fact, th this is something that they actually did. Um, there's a couple of uh, places along S Southern California that a ship can get into, but there's very few actual harbors. When I describe the, the harbor situation from um, uh, Point Conception, actually, you have uh, Marina del Rey, which is a man-made harbor, kind of didn't even exist. The next real harbor was just under San Pedro's, because San Pedro's a, a high kind of uh, mountain-type peninsula, and, and, and below it, this corner, you're protected from the wind. And um, it was mostly mud flats, and you could get to hard ground from there. Okay. After that, we're going south. There isn't much of anything um, to go to. It's all cliffs. There's some marshland. All right. Um, but it's, it's very dense and very deep. 
um, there isn't really another place or another port, a natural port, until you get to San Diego. So this is a long area. And then from San Diego, there's very few natural ports going down through to Baja. All right. So this is why Los Angeles became a really important place. And um, it was um, considered New Spain. Um, so that's sort of like a little bit of, of, of how it began. Um, the European settlement um, was, it began in like 1769, I think. Um, and, and they tried to populate California with Europeans. Um, so there was the Spanish, and then there were French, there were Russian, there were English. Uh, this, this was land that had been conquered and, 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 and taken by the Spanish. So it was part of the, the Spanish Empire, okay? And this is where, this gives a great deal of... Um, uh, credence to uh, you know California as being a Spanish pos possession at the time. So the big thing is is that um, Phineas Banning. Now Phineas Banning is a name of of noteworthy um, because under the United States control in 1848 and the United States had defeated Mexico. Of course, Spain had gotten kicked out. Um, it was just Mexico that said that they 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 were the country that owned it, and the United States kicked uh, um, Mexico in the American War, Mexican-American War, and the harbor at that point was greatly improved and expanded under the guidance of Phineas Banning. Now Phineas Banning um, brought the Los Angeles and San Pedro Railroad, being the first railroad in this area um, and eventually would bring the Southern Pacific into this. And this is where you have a real melding of the railroad with ships at the port. This whole thing began um, to develop into what it is today, which is absolutely one of the most stunning uh, industrial developments that you could possibly imagine, biggest in the world. And what I mean is the container docks, the ships that come in there, the regularity and frequency, um, and the amount of people that it employ. They built ships in Los Angeles, and I'm going to include Long Beach in that, although some people may say, oh, no, Long Beach is separate. Well, if you're sailing along the boat, you don't. There's no sign that says you're now in Long Beach Harbor. You just gotta kind of go by it. If you see the Queen Mary, you're in Long Beach. If if you don't, you're in Los Angeles Harbor. So the area was just, you know, vibrant. There were jobs. You know, there was like a tremendous amount of, of of people. The railroad brought prosperity, and in this prosperity it brought um croatians um if you remember our good friend tommy twang is he's part of that whole uh, middle european um croatian slavic world and his father croatians portuguese huge portuguese uh presence in in the port 
um, Mexican, Italian. The largest Italian uh, enclave in all of California is in San Pedro. Irish, Greek, and and in all sorts of different sort of um, Norwegian communities. Okay, um, there's the Norwegian Seamen's Church, um, and even in 1942, San Pedro was home to a very vibrant Japanese immigrant community of about 3,000 people who created this typical Japanese fishing village. And in fact, remnants of it are still there. They've been commercialized, changed, because what they did was these Japanese immigrants, um, they're out, uh, they pioneered albacore fishing. And albacore was, albacore was one of, is one of the great fishes. They also harvested abalone off of White Point. And this led the way to establishing a viable fishing industry in San Pedro. Um, but because of the war and because of this horrible Japanese-American internment bullshit that went on, um, their entire place was raised and all of these poor people were sent off to internment camps. Which is, just pisses me off because this is just... This is stupid people. This is stupid people doing stupid things and, and smart people realizing it, not standing up to it. So the merging of the railroad and the shipping in a scale that's ridiculously big, um, the movement of freight trains, the movement of tractor trailers, is just stunning all the time if you're down in the port. Now, me, personally, I moved out of Marina del Rey because they were tearing down my marina, and I couldn't find a place for my boat. So I went down to the port of Los Angeles, and I'll tell you what, I was never so, I was very happy. I, 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 it was like traveling to a foreign country. You know, there was labor, there was art, there were taco trucks, and I mean taco trucks like to kill for. And when we do the show, we're going to do some super taco trucks. But it also sort of made me get out of my white yachter kind of yacht captain privileged person attitude. And as Bukowski said, some people never go crazy what truly horrible lives they must lead. And I was going crazy because I was working in two different worlds. I was working in the gritty, uh, unforgiving world of commercial marine uh, life. Um, I was working by the hour. Um, I was pushing. I, I actually left my job. Uh, Ted, Ted left. Um, he sold this business. Um, some, a younger guy took over the business. Um, and I was no longer needed as a captain because he was going to do it himself along with his brother, I believe. So I, I was out there, you know, writing, I was writing full time. Um, but I needed a, a job. I needed more work. And, you know, then I discovered in San Pedro Bukowski, if you haven't uh, seen the movie uh, Barfly, 
with Mickey Rorick and Faye Dunaway. Um, it's hilarious. It's sad. It's ruthless. It's disheveled. It's uncomfortable. Um, and I found myself kind of doing the movie. Maybe drinking too much, smoking way too much. On my boat, writing the next greatest uh, uh, novel, going to, going to bars where I was, where I didn't speak Spanish and and only a few words, and sitting and having people look at me like I was like, "What the hell are you doing here?" But I have to say that San Pedro, where Bukowski lived, and he lived. He lived up on the hill, and from his writing studio or writing room, he could look out and see the entire port of of Los Angeles and 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 Long Beach. And I'll tell you what, I would choose that any day over a pastoral scene. Um, I like the busyness and the dynamics of a port. Now, if you're a cruiser and you go into one of these big ports, for example, um, if you go into Hamburg in Germany. Um, the chances of you finding work in these ports is going to be very slim, um, unless you have a, like a, a mad skill, like a super mad skill. But it takes time to integrate, and you've got to be good. You've got to try to be good with the language because you don't know what language people are going to be speaking. Like I was in Hamburg, and most of the people that I ran into are actually speaking Turkish because the Turks are kind of in Germany or the low man on the totem pole working their way up. So in this labor and art mosaic that I was going into in, in Los Angeles Harbor, I was having this very gritty life of artist and writer. Um, I, I spent a great deal of time, um, actually working uh, on a ship um, to, I was working on a ship to deliver supplies, vessel supplies, a vessel supply ship. Um, it was, you know, 65 foot uh, uh, twin, twin uh, 160 diesels, Detroit diesels. And, um, you know, they, they, it was big enough that the, the aft area was big enough to put, uh, um, some crates on and, and which could be lifted up, some pallets. Um, usually I took food out to the, the ships that were anchored outside of Los Angeles. I would take the crew out to, to the ships and drop them off and come back. I was on call 24-7. Um, I would sit, actually I would sit in the harbor uh, on the boat. I would sleep on the boat I would do three, four days in a row, kind of like what happened on the tugboat. And then, you know, they would get a contract for me to go. And, you know, I'd go pick up a pallet and a crane would put the pallet in the back of the, you know, on the aft deck of the boat. Then I would take it out to the ship and the ship would put the crane down and take the pallet off. And then I'd offload the people and other sailors and, um, you know, it was it was a lot of work. It was you know it was very very different. It's where you wore um, steel-toed shoes instead of you know going barefoot, and wearing flip-flops or Sperry Rands on your boat. Um, 
you know, it was, uh, it was bloody knuckles. It was long hours. It was backbreaking. It was gritty. It was depressing, but it was stunningly successful. I made a very, very, very good, um, living doing it. It was hard work, but I made a very good, good living doing it. And for a weird way that the whole experience of being a quote unquote, a frivolous charter boat captain in the Caribbean, da, 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 let's have a drink with an umbrella in it, to go from that kind of life to going into working in a, in, in a gritty um, uh, commercial vein in which the port itself is this, is this, um, is a place where the world leaves its calling card. It's where the people and men and women who, who serve um, to operate the machinery, you know, because you have to understand there's probably, there's probably close to 90,000 people that are affected by what goes on in this port on a daily basis. They make their money from this port. They're truck drivers. They're, 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 uh, long, they're longshoremen that because Los Angeles is the largest place where they import cars from Japan mostly um, and Korea. But, uh, you know, there's guys that go on, they, they, they go on the ships, they get in a car and they drive it off. That's their job. And they do hundreds of these. They work all day. They get their 12 hours in. They make some overtime. They get paid very well. They're all union, which is great. So all of these... All of this work of this machinery of moving goods, moving goods from the ship to the truck to the train or from the tra truck to another truck and then being distributed across the world, across the United States. This is got, there's a, the people that do this have a lot of pride and they have a lot of dignity. And, you know, work like this is good for the soul. It's a good thing, and I, I appreciate it very much, and I'm very thankful that I got to be a part of, of that kind of experience. And it actually made me respect more the experience I had as a gentleman sailor. Because the marine world, people have created, their families have, have built assets. Um, Wilmington... And for just a quick aside, Wilmington is one of the port cities. It's a Los Angeles port city. It's right next to San Pedro, and it's separated by industrial stuff and all the rest of that kind of stuff. And, and, and it's a very gritty kind of thing. It's mostly Hispanic. Uh, it's absolutely lovely. Um, and once you're there for a while and you realize that um, there's families um, that are working very hard, some are first generation, some are second generation. But what they do is th these people, they work very hard. They celebrate wonderful. I, I got to go to a birthday party where over 100 people showed up at the birthday party. It was absolutely f fantastic and colorful and with wonderful music and, and all sorts of wonderful things going on. And, and the 4th of July is, oh, my God, the fireworks is like ridiculous. People are so happy to be an American so happy to be an American and so prideful of being an American. And these people work in the port and they have, they have developed assets for their family. You know, 
and they've bought houses. And from those houses, they've, they've, they've gotten their kids educated. The kids' education has gone off, and the kids have become have bettered themselves. And now maybe the kids are working in, in over at uh, SpaceX, for example, which is you know, very close to, to the port itself. It's part of the complex, essentially, of that area. You know, and all, you know, all the airplane factories, and they get higher wages, okay? So everything comes from that first longshoreman picking up that, that 300-pound sack, you know, and walking it down the gangway and throwing it onto the back of a truck and then turning around and going back to the, that kind of brilliant American um, dignity and pride in work. So the irony of all of this and the irony of all the labors that are going on in, in, in San Pedro and, and Wilmington and Long Beach, you know, in Long Beach, they used to have the Formula One racing and they have all sorts of car racing there. And they, you have a Queen Mary and people are, you know, in, in Wilmington or in San Pedro, I mean, they have uh, the Iowa, the great battleship, Iowa, and a couple of other things uh, but this is, a, there's a cruise ship port there. These are all incidental things. They're, they're not the important part of what the port is. The important part of the port is what is that labor that created and that facilitates the machinery. And it's exactly the same sort of mindset that you need to have when you run a boat, when you manage your own boat, the efficiency, the method, the process, right? The how you take your lines off the dock, which are your line? Do you number your lines? You know, one, two, three, four. How do you take them? Do your springs are three and four, or two and three? Bow is number one. Stern is number four, right? You can drop the lines in a particular order, in order to get off your dock with wind on one side, or to to move your boat in a different direction to set your stern to set your bow um, for you to continue to proceed all of this stuff it mindset wise is exactly what it is in the port only it's manifested in physical mechanical and spiritual trade and one of the funny things is is I was um, on my way out to a ship. It was in the afternoon. I had um, a, a couple of crew members from the ship. They're all Filipinos. Um, I had a, I was loaded down pretty heavy, and um, I, it had food, mostly food, for the ship. And everybody was guys. You know, they had just come off leave, and they were all laughing and this, that, and other thing. And as we are going out through the uh, uh, Angels Light Gate. Um, you could see the America's Cup guys were over practicing, um, and in the wind, in the afternoon wind off of uh, Cabrillo, Cabrillo Point, because um, they were preparing to go um, to Perth, Australia, to to race the Aussies to get the cup back. And um, it, the wind blows hard out there in the afternoon, surprisingly hard. Um, and it's a good place uh, to practice. But I was just looking at that, and I couldn't help um, but feel thankful. 
that I have managed to live in those worlds and I've gained understanding of that world and perspective of that world of the gentleman yachtsman um, and somehow the port breathed life into my life and the variety and the efficiency of the machinery of commerce as it has for centuries made sailing and being a mariner much more noble and much more important than I had ever thought. Thanks for sharing, Scott. Yeah, I have a feeling we'll probably hear a lot more stories about L.A. and Long Beach Harbor since they are really important to getting goods into this country. That It's a major port of entry. And if you've ever been down there, um, and I know some of you have, it's it's huge. It, it really is. And you see the, the train tracks coming right up to the port. Um, and you see them loading up the the goods onto the train tracks. It's 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 a lot of fun to watch. It's better than actually working there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you know, it's it's a it's a place where um, it's it's a good paying job. It's a union paying job. Um, the ports employ about ninety thousand people um, throughout uh, Southern California. Um, they're much more extensive than you might think. Um, they touch everybody in the country, these ports. And this, this port in particular has a great rich history of um, the melding of uh, ships and sailors and marine people to um, steamships um, and, and steam engines and trains. And just it's a phenomenal thing that they built out here. And um, it's a very interesting, and it's it's got some really interesting cultural quirks, which I kind of went over, and I hope everybody enjoyed it. And so moving on from that, what do we have in store for next week's episode? Well, next week is number 52, right? Uh, it's 51. It's 51. Okay, so 51 will be... Um, almost the last, I guess we count 52 as our full year of episodes, um, 51, uh, one of the subjects that I wanted to tackle is the subject that a lot of young families have, um, talked about and, and sort of want to explore and that's boat kids. I love boat kids. Uh, if, if I, someone was a boat kid and they walked up to me today and said, I need a job or I want a job. And I was a boat kid and I sailed all around the world. I would hire that kid in a second because I know that they are responsible. Um, they're creative and they have an inner clock. They know how to regulate themselves. And um, boat kids just have a special way about themselves. And um, we'll talk about some of the, the kids setting records and sailing around the world. Um, and, um, just, just the whole atmosphere of boat kids. Um, our trip will take us, will take us down to, uh, to Trinidad where, um, 
Many years ago, there was a very interesting sort of collection of families that used to meet down in Port of Spain um, during hurricane season, and all the kids would get to play each, play with each other. Um, and they were all from different boats and different cultures and different countries. Very cool. Thank you for tuning in. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, be sure to rate and review. You can find us on Facebook and at offshoreexplorer.org. You can also listen to past episodes at offshore-explorer.simplecast.com. Our theme song is sung by Paulette McWilliams, with additional music by Amanu Itomi and Tommy Twang. Until next time, fair winds and calm seas.